From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, the experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 245 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, John Sakari. John, how are you today? Very good and very happy to be here with you for this part two of uh, very interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, it is fun um, t- going back in time to my some of this in my boyhood when um, Walt was on television and all that. Yeah, so in our previous episode, we talked about how Walt Disney entered into an agreement with the ABC television network with the primary intention to promote films and obtain financing to construct Disneyland the park. We left our story with Walt and Roy signing the contract with ABC and planning their first television series titled Disneyland to tie it into Disneyland the park. Walt decided he would be the host with the initial intention of handing off the hosting duties once the show got running. A majority of Walt's introductions to the episodes were filmed in his office. What most didn't realize was that this office was in reality a set, specially constructed for the series. Although it was meant to represent Walt's actual office, the set was enhanced a bit to make it more interesting to viewers. For example, at this time, Walt's real office was in the studio's animation building. However, the view outside his office window for the television series was of the animation building. The awards seen in the office set were real because Walt felt more comfortable with his own belongings. Everything moved from Walt's real office to the office set was categorized So as Walt's belongings were moved back and forth, they were returned back to their correct locations. All of this had to be done with very little notice and quickly because Walt's busy schedule didn't allow him a lot of time on the office set. Walt wanted his awards in his real office in case visitors stopped by. So they had to be removed very shortly before filming, then returned immediately after filming. Because of Walt's limited time, his introductions could not be filmed weekly, and it would not have been cost-effective to have the office set prepared each week with the crew standing by for the filming. To take advantage of Walt's availability, the crew would film several introductions for multiple episodes at one time. Walt once set a record by filming 12 to 14 introductions over three days. (laughs) In the beginning... Walt's introductions were written by the same writers who worked on that week's episode. And Walt didn't like this because his speaking style ended up being different for each episode. Walt's solution was to hire a personal writer who would write the type of warm and humorous introductions Walt would write if he had the time. Walt hired a former studio employee, Jack Spears, 
who wrote Walt's introductions for several years. When Spears moved on to work on Winston Hibbler's nature film scripts, Jack Bruner wrote Walt's introductions until Walt's passing in 1966. Despite Walt being comfortable with these introductions and his claims to be uncomfortable hosting the show, he frequently ad-libbed in many of his introductions, especially the ones with animals. Walt took another gamble with this television series. Most television shows at this time were filmed and broadcast in black and white. And as we discussed in our previous episode, both CBS and NBC had their own color systems, and Walt felt the CBS system was inferior. Walt believed that the future of television was color, and Walt tried to convince ABC to produce the Disneyland series in color, even though the contract they had signed did not include any provisions for color broadcasting. Also, with ABC being the smallest of the three networks, they had very few stations who could afford color transmission equipment. After his experience with re-releasing films to theaters, Walt wanted his television series to also be reusable and even to be used for theatrical release in other countries. So at his studio's expense, Walt had his series filmed in color. On Wednesday, October 27, 1954, television audiences sat in front of their television sets and tuned into ABC with great anticipation to view the very first episode of Walt Disney's Disneyland. The first episode was titled The Disneyland Story, and Walt explained this vision for his new theme park. Disneyland, with concept art of each realm and of several attractions. He also promoted the studio's next live-action film, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It was no secret that Walt planned to use the show to promote this his theme park. In a TV Guide interview about the park's opening, a Disney staff member was quoted by, quote, By that time, there will be hardly a living soul in the United States who won't have heard about the Disneyland amusement park and who won't be dying to come see it. Yes, sir, television is a wonderful thing, unquote. Although the park would be promoted in future episodes, the content of each episode was determined primarily by time constraints. The next few episodes made heavy use of existing film footage, The second episode featured Alice in Wonderland, and other episodes promoted upcoming films with lots of clips from those films. These episodes were fairly low budget, but had big payoffs for the studio. Walt knew showing Alice in Wonderland would be popular with viewers, and since Alice had done poorly at the box office, showing it on television wouldn't hurt its release to theaters, since it would be a while before it was re-released. Now, Roy wasn't happy about Walt using films for the television series. Walt once joked that he got Roy's permission by telling him he was only using clips. He just didn't (laughs) tell Roy how long the clips would be. (laughs) Probably one of Walt's best successes in promoting a film was the episode Operation Undersea, about the making of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
Walt was so confident about one of the networks being willing to meet his terms about investing in Disneyland, he started working on this episode before signing a television deal. Walt sent out a documentary crew to where the main unit of 20,000 Leagues was filming and got behind-the-scenes footage that was edited with clips from the film. This episode was so successful, it was rerun three times the first year, and the ratings grew with each reshowing. Wow. The studio received two Emmy Awards for this episode, one for Best Individual Show and one for Best Television Film Editing. Have you seen this, John? Because it's on like some of the DVDs and Blu-rays for 20 I have not. Under the Sea. I, I, I have not. It's really interesting, and it's a giant commercial for the film. And to think he won two Emmy Awards for it is just um, amazing. Is amazing. We were so innocent, and we didn't know. Yeah, well, (laughs) people loved it. People absolutely loved it, and it's fascinating to see how they filmed it, and and you know, and that was unique in those days. You know, now we see behind the scenes all the time. But we wouldn't watch it before seeing the film. We wouldn't watch the making of something prior to seeing it, usually. Usually. Yeah, but but this was different back in those days. And, you know, it paid off at the box office for him. Now, the series relied on reused clips from theatrical shorts and films until the debut of their first fully made-for-television episode, Davy Crockett. This would be one of Walt's biggest television successes, and is now considered to be the first television miniseries. Looking back on the success of Davy Crockett, it's hard to believe that it came close to not being made. Walt's team had been researching the lives of famous Americans to use for the Frontierland segments of the Disneyland series, but Walt rejected all of them. Walt told his staff that he wanted these segments to be about heroes. Said Walt, I don't want any picked over heroes. There will be no outlaws or bad men glorified. No Jesse James or the Daltons. After months of research, the team had not made any progress in selecting a subject for these segments. An impatient Walt finally called a meeting. The team knew they had to have a recommendation to give to Walt before going into this meeting. Recalling this meeting, Bill Walsh admitted their recommendation was a lucky accident. In an interview, Walsh recalled, We were planning to do a series on American folk heroes like Johnny Appleseed, Daniel Boone, and Bigfoot Wallace, and the first one we pulled out by dumb luck was Davy Crockett. Walt didn't share the team's enthusiasm with this choice because he felt there was too much in Crockett's life about fighting Indians. So the team drew up some storyboards about Davy Crockett, and Walsh said, quote, And may I tell you, we put in everything but the kitchen sink in those boards. Like there was fighting the Indians, Seminoles down in Florida, fighting tomahawk duels with Red Stick. Then he went to Congress and raised hell. Then he fought Andy Jackson, who was doing something bad to the Indians, and Davy stalked out of Congress because Andy Jackson was stealing from the Indians, and he didn't want to hear about it. In fact, he fought Andy Jackson tooth and nail. Then he went out west and had a lot of adventures going out west, and he had a lot more Indian fights out there. 
Then he got into trouble with the Cowboys, early Texans. And then he got to go to the Alamo for 14 days. And last day of the Alamo, they broke the joint wide open. He died as he had lived, swinging his rifle around. And there was this pile of 17 dead Mexicans piling up in front of him. Walt looked at all of this and he said, and I'll never forget his classic line, yeah, but what does he do? (laughs) Oh, my God. (sighs) After the team finally convinced Walt on Davy Crockett, Walt took an interest in casting for the Davy Crockett episodes. At first, Walt settled on actor Buddy Epson for the role of Davy Crockett. After seeing the science fiction film Them, someone suggested that film star James Arness for the role of Davy Crockett. But a minor actor in the film had caught Walt's attention, a six-foot-five-inch actor named Fess Parker, who had grown up on a ranch near Fort Worth, Texas. Parker would be the first actor to sign a long-term contract with the Walt Disney Studio. When they talk about them, Michael, are they talking about the Ant movie? Yep. Yeah, the Ant movie. Okay. I remember the sounds from that movie. Was it like, and the ants would come? Okay, so Fess Parker was in that movie? He was, sort of in the background. I have to watch that again. I don't remember him at all. I remember seeing that when I was little on Creature Features. Yep, scared the heck out of me. on Saturdays. Yeah, yeah. But Walt had this eye for, you know, recognizing talent. You know, so yeah, and he um, fit. The, I mean, he fit the role perfectly. Oh, he did. He was he was great. So, the studio signed actor Carlton Carpenter for the role of Davy's sidekick Georgie Russell, but then they had they changed their mind right before filming and decided to sign Buddy Epson for the role. So Epson arrived at the North Carolina film location the day before filming was scheduled to begin, and I looked up. Carlton Carpenter. He was actually a very well-known actor at the time. Hmm. He was in a number of films, television. I think he went on to write songs and direct, things like that. Um, not a big name today, but um, very different from the look of Buddy Epson, though. Buddy Epson looked like a hardened mountain man, and, yeah, and yeah, Carlton yeah. Carpenter not quite as much. So he had a boy next door sort of look to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so John, when you think of the Davy Crockett series, though, what's the first thing you think of? The hat. Okay, the, the hat. hat. That's interesting. Yeah, and I think my father bought me the hat mm-hmm. at Disneyland. I Never think eat. he bought it across from the Bear Jamboree. They used to have those hats, mm-hmm. and they even had Big Al plush. Yeah, they did. They did. So, um, yeah, well, uh, for many people... One of their fondest memories of the series is the theme song, The Ballad of Davy Crockett. Bill Walsh spoke about how this song was created. So after editing the first episode, they had five minutes left to fill and said Walsh, quote, It was panic time again. Unless we padded the show, we would run short. I finally decided we could pad it by using the original storyboard sketches as a prologue to the film. Walt liked the idea, but thought that it needed something extra, something like music. In a flash, I was on the phone to Tom Blackburn, who had written the script. I told him we had to have a song to accompany the drawings. Could he write one? 
Blackburn's response was, quote, hell, I've never wrote a lyric in my life, unquote. <laughs> Walsh told him it didn't matter. They needed a song, any song. Seeing Walsh was desperate, Blackburn got George Bruns, who had written the score for the episode. And after 20 minutes, they came back to Walsh saying, well, it isn't much, and began singing, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. Walsh thought it was <laughs> awful, <laughs> but time had run out. The Ballad of Davy Crockett has become one of the most memorable theme songs ever written for television. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't know Davy, Davy Crockett? King of the wild frontier. Yep. Yeah. 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 Said George Bruns of the song. The irony of it was that most people thought it was an authentic folk song that we had uncovered and updated. Walt liked the song so much that before the first episode aired, he decided to include it in all three Crockett episodes because he thought it helped move the story along. In an editing meeting, he said, this particular story will hit the adults more, but the lyrics will pick it up for the kids. It's what I call a comic book approach. And you know how many adults still read comic books. These lyrics are important. They help to keep the story moving in the minds of children and also in the minds of some adults who will be wondering what's happening. As the song was incorporated into all the episodes, it grew to have 20 verses. To say the Davy Crockett series was a success is an understatement, and it took Walt and his team by surprise. Walt would later say, We had no idea what was going to happen on Crockett. Why, by the time the first show finally got on the air, we were already shooting the third one and calmly killing off David at the Alamo. The studio found itself with one of the biggest hits on television, and its main character was dead. Oh. <laughs> Despite Davy's heroic death at the Alamo, the public wanted more stories about Davy Crockett. But Walt didn't like to repeat himself and resisted, saying there are a lot of good stories around. After the series run, Walt made a surprise announcement that with the success of the series, the episodes would be edited into one story and be released theatrically. People who had seen it for free would now be expected to pay to see it again. Critics were stunned. This had never been done before. Theater owners weren't all thrilled. Some were happy to be able to capitalize on the popularity of Davy Crockett, but others saw it as another threat from television. Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, was released into more than 1,300 theaters and was a success, bringing in $2.5 million at the box office. Amazing when you consider 90 million people had already viewed it on television. <laughs> so again, Walt pioneered, you know, something that had never yeah. been done before. And they're, they're still doing stuff like this today with like the re-release of Avatar. Mm -hmm. And it, it was pretty successful, and it's another theatrical run all this time late. Yeah, yeah. You know, not not the second one. The first one they re-released before yeah. the second one. Or look at now what they're doing is now they're releasing um, television films like Knives Out. 
yep. and to, to theaters for a limited run and then putting it on television. I so, like and they're idea. doing very well. Yep. So, yeah. Now the series did fairly well representing almost all of the realms of Disneyland on the show with one exception. The Tomorrowland segment had only one episode. As continually plagues that realm of the park today, no one knew how to portray the future. The studio placed an episode into production titled Rockets and Space, using a Collier's Magazine issue dated March 23, 1952 as source material. The issue featured articles by rocket scientists Werner von Braun, Willie Lay, and Heinz Haber. The episode was produced by Disney animator Ward Kimball, who had brought this magazine to the attention of Walt and his team. In a major coup for the studio, von Braun, Lay, and Haber were brought on as special advisors and appeared on the show. In previous episodes of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I explored these Man in Space episodes in detail, and they're worth a listen. The content of the episodes created by Kimball, Von Braun, and his scientific team were years ahead of its time. The episode titled Man in Space depicted with remarkable accuracy how astronauts would break Earth's gravity, fly into space, and successfully return to Earth. The episodes also predicted how we would reach the moon and return, and even how a space shuttle would operate. When the Man in Space episodes aired, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union would add its height, as was interest in the space race between the two countries. The ratings for rockets in space were so high that the episode was rebroadcast three months later and was equally successful with audiences. This episode reportedly had one very important viewer, United States President Dwight D. Eisenhower, who contacted the Walt Disney Studio to borrow a print of the episode. As the story goes, the president showed it to his space experts and advisors at the Pentagon. On July 30th, 1955, it was announced that the United States would launch a satellite into Earth orbit. President Eisenhower publicly credited Walt's show with convincing his experts, the public, and Congress of the possibility of space travel and helping to get the funding needed to pave the way for America's space program. All this in Walt's little anthology series. Yeah, and, and Walt is doing this as entertainment. There's really nothing to glean, I don't think, from it that would say, you know, this is what we should be doing. The... Um, the there, there was humor in it. It would always the, the episodes had a pattern. They would start out with humor and in a in the Walt Kimball wacky style of humor and animation, but then it would settle in on the real science. Okay, and and, and it was animated because it was cheaper to do it that way. And like like I was saying, this was years, decades ahead of its time. Um, when I think it was Apollo eight. When it um, circled the Earth and all that, Von Braun actually contacted, he called um, Ward Kimball and said, well, they, they're using our script because it was almost exactly like how it was depicted in, in the Man in Space series. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Now, America's interest in space continued to grow. The studio reran rockets in space a third time, and again the ratings were high. So this prompted Walt to release the episode to theaters in 1956 as a short subject. Walt had once again done the impossible by running a television episode three times in six months before releasing it theatrically, all with great success. It's kind of the opposite of today, whereas it'll do the the theater run a little bit, then end up on streaming. Now it's television first, Mm -hmm. then the theater. I just wonder how many people got to the theater set and went, oh, I saw this already. Well, except that it would have been highly publicized. You know, there would have been posters for it. It would have been on the marquees. Um, You know, everyone would have known what they were going for. Yeah, right. They weren't trying to hide it. And and it wouldn't surprise me if that's why they went to the theater. Just to see it again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because now they could see it on the big screen. So. At the end of its first season, Disneyland was the sixth-rated series on television, attracting an average of 39% of the viewing audience each week. Besides the two Emmy Awards received for Operation Undersea, the series also won the Emmy for Best Variety Series. As preparations were underway for the second season, Walt finally capitulated to the demand for more Davy Crockett stories set before the Alamo. The studio was already working on a story about Mike Fink, the legendary keelboater on the Mississippi River, and a decision was made to add Davy Crockett to the story. When it was pointed out that there was no evidence that Mike Kink and Davy Mike Fink and Davy Crockett had ever met, a staff writer commented that there was no evidence they hadn't. <laughs> no, isn't there a Fink keelboats or something? Oh yeah. Mike okay, Fink keelboats. They're, well, they used yes. to have the Mike Fink keelboats in the parks going around the rivers of America. That's what, I, that's what I'm talking about. That's not yeah. there anymore, huh? No, no, unfortunately. Those, those were one – that was my favorite way to go around the rivers of America. They had a better spiel, in my opinion, the, the keelboat captains, than the Jungle Cruise skippers. Oh, gosh. And then the uh, they were hilarious. And then the funny thing is they would have these little mock competitions with the ca- the, the canoe boat um, <laughs> captains and then the big ship captains. And they would have all this banter going back and forth as you pass them. And, uh, and those keelboats were not on a rail, as we learned oh, yeah. when one toppled over in <laughs> Disneyland. Because, I remember the canoes. Oh, yeah. And we still have them at Disneyland. Oh wow! So yeah, the Davy—they're they're called now the Davy Crockett um, canoes now. So, but um, but they uh, but oh, those were great. And you sat on the top. That was my favorite, or on the front, were the two best places. And the ones at Disneyland originally were, and and we did a history on connecting with Walt of the Mike Fink keelboat attraction um, in an earlier episode, but. Um, Originally, they were the ones from the television show because this was so popular. These Mike Fink and Davy Crockett series that they um, Walt rushed the boats into the park to capitalize oh. on it. Then they later rebuilt them and replaced them, but um, but they were top heavy. Unfortunately, one was overcrowded uh. one day with guests and it toppled uh. over. So. Uh, and that, that was the beginning of the end for the keelboats. Yeah. There's still one docked 
and uh, our rivers of America. The the burning log cabin, remember they used to have? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It's ours has been redone to be Mike Fink's cabin. And so his keel boat is outside and they re they restored the keel boat to look like the film version. I wish they would do that here. I like Yeah, that, that would be cool. Yeah, your Rivers of America needs to be livened up. It oh, doesn't it does. have all the scenes and the storyline that ours has. Yeah, it needs it. So yeah. So so anyway, so the original Mike Fink story was rewritten and it became Davy Crockett and the Rivermen. And it soon became two episodes, Davy Crockett's Keelboat Race and Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. And Jeff York was signed on to portray Mike Fink and Fess Parker and Buddy Epson returned to their roles. The new episodes were filmed on location along the Ohio River and were rebroadcast a number of times before once again being re-edited and re-released theatrically as Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. This film did less well than Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, and Walt knew the Crockett craze was at its end. Another highlight of season two is the episode titled The Story of Animated Drawing, in which Walt explained the history of animation, starting from prehistoric times through primitive mechanical animation inventions of the 19th century, up to how the studio created cartoons with synchronized sound. Man in Space had aired late at the end of the first season, so everyone at the studio was surprised by its success, or I should say rockets in space. And so they were unprepared to capitalize on its success at the beginning of season two. The only Tomorrowland episode this season was Man in the Moon, suggesting how man flight to the moon would take place and how a space station in Earth's orbit could be constructed. And you know, when you look at that space station and then you look at, and then you watch 2001 A Space Odyssey, yeah. you see some direct connections there. So um, very, very similar in those space stations. A favorite in viewer, with viewers in season three was The Plausible Impossible, which was another episode on animation featuring Walt explaining how drawings and animation makes things that are impossible seem possible and cited examples of Egyptian gods, dragons, and Greek mythology, along with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck cartoons. Viewers also saw an unfinished scene from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that was cut from the film. And this Plausible and Impossible is, uh, is um, available on, on hard, uh, I think on um, physical media. I, I think it might even be on Disney Plus. Not sure. Well, I don't so. know if there's another Snow White and Seven Dwarfs piece that was cut. The one I remember was them eating or getting ready for soup or something. There's the soup scene. There's also a scene where they're building Snow White's bed that ended up getting cut. Ah, it was in, would, they had I the rough drawings and all that. And I think there was even, and, and then and there were songs associated with both of those really? scenes as well. Oh yeah. The, yeah. The, the soup song. I remember, I don't know the yeah. other one. So at this time, Westerns were gaining popularity in the theaters and on television. Without Davy Crockett, Walt had no plans for his frontier segments, which Frontierland segments, which was a concern. 
Walt planned to correct this for season four. The solution was to create a character as close to Davy as possible. This time the subject would be about a fur trapper, but a fictional one named Andy Burnett, who was a character made popular in a series of novels by Stuart Edward White. This miniseries titled The Saga of Andy Burnett followed his adventures as he traveled the West with a band of mountain men. The studio duplicated the Crockett formula in most every way. Burnett was a quiet, thoughtful man who downplayed his knowledge and skills like Davy. He always dressed in buckskins and carried a rifle rather than a pistol. He also had a sidekick named Joe Crane, who was a bit of a combination of Georgie Russell and Mike Fink. Joe Crane was portrayed by actor Jeff York, who had played Mike Fink. Jerome Cortland was hired as Andy Burnett and was also six foot five inches. Walt had George Burns and Tom Blackburn also write a theme song for the episodes, similar to the Ballad of Davy Crockett. Sadly, Andy Burnett did not achieve the level of popularity as Davy Crockett. Are you familiar with the this? Not I, at all. When I was researching Andy Burnett, I found out somebody had been posting, they posted the series on YouTube. So it's there. And then when last week's series got posted on Facebook, one of our listeners posted in the comments, he's the one that has been doing that. Because I thought, how can any where? How did anybody get those? And I, I'm wondering <laughs> if it, I, it may have been released like on um, VHS, and then it never made the crossover to like DVD or Blu-ray. Did because you check it out on YouTube? I'm wondering how the quality is. I, I watched just a little of it, but I didn't have time to watch them all. But I'm going to because I'm really curious about this. Was it acceptable quality? It was fine. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was very good, and so considering you know everything. And, um, but I guess he, I guess what he does is he shares on YouTube, um, what he said in his message, he shares on YouTube, what I guess was released on VHS, but not, but what was not, you know, upgraded to DVD and Blu-ray, which is too bad because I think people would like to see these series, but you know, I don't think Disney's going to invest the money. Yeah, if they're not digital by now, we're going eventually we're going to lose yeah. it completely. Yeah. But unless unless Disney feels it'll bring more um paying customers, subscribers to Disney Plus, they're not gonna do it. This is true. So. With the increased popularity of Westerns on television, ABC continually pressured Walt to produce more Frontierland segments during season four. Walt did not like giving in to these demands and felt they restricted his creative freedom. Walt called a meeting with ABC executives and made them wait in a conference room till he was ready. Then Walt entered the room, dressed as a cowboy, tossed his pistols on the table and said, Okay, you want westerns? You're gonna have westerns. There were 10 <laughs> Frontierland segments during season four, if you include the Andy Burnett six-episode miniseries. The only Tomorrowland episode in season four was Mars and Beyond, which aired two months after the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1, which was the very first satellite to be launched. This episode was also a huge success in the ratings. By 1957, the Walt Disney Studio was producing the Disneyland series, the Mickey Mouse Club, and Zorro for ABC. 
Due to the success of these series, ABC wanted more television series from Disney. In the spring of 1958, executives from Walt Disney Productions and ABC had their annual meeting to talk about next season's plans. Walt said, quote, all right, you want another series? I'll give you one, unquote. Walt went on to describe his proposal for a series titled The Shaggy Dog. James Aubrey, the head of programming and talent for ABC, who had joined the meeting late, looked at his watch and told Walt he had to leave for another appointment. Walt was irritated by Aubrey's action. And 30 minutes after the meeting with ABC ended, he called together a story meeting and told his team they were going to make a film out of the Shaggy Dog. Years later, Don Tatum told James Aubrey, Jim, we've got a shrine in our place to you. We keep a light there of undying pledge. When Aubrey asked why, Tatum replied, do you have any idea how many millions of dollars you made for us by getting up and leaving the meeting that day? Tatum then shared with Aubrey the grosses on the shaggy dog, the absent-minded professor, and the son of Flubber. <laughs> Those are I all remember the shaggy dog of. the yeah. most. Yeah, yeah. And the absent-minded professor, that was like another one with great special effects. It was Fred yes, McMurray yes. sort of starting him yes. out with his relationship with Disney. Fred so. McMurray was my three sons, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the fifth season of the series, the title was changed from Disneyland to Walt Disney Presents. The Western emphasis continued with Elfego Baca, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. That was a miniseries starring Robert Loja as the man who couldn't be killed, who was a sheriff turned lawyer to defend the rights of Mexican-Americans, and Texas John Slaughter, starring Tom Tyrone, which was narrated by Paul Fries and based on the life of a real Texas Ranger. This miniseries ran from 1958 through 1961. Tyrone was distinctive by wearing an enormous white cowboy hat with the brim pinned up in front. And I've seen um, episodes of both of these. I really enjoyed them. So there, some were lim- were released on on physical media. I'm not familiar at all. Yeah, the Western emphasis increased in season six, and a press release announced that 18 of the 26 episodes that season would be Frontierland segments. The remaining eight episodes would be split between Fantasyland and Adventureland segments. Walt grew increasingly frustrated with ABC. He felt he no longer had the creative freedom he had enjoyed during the first three seasons of the series. When he came up with a new idea that wasn't Western-themed, the network executive shot it down. And, and I intended that pun there. In 1959, relations between the studio and NBC were going downhill. Walt and Roy now felt that ABC was benefiting more from their deal than the studio. So they started exploring the idea of selling the show to NBC or CBS. But ABC claimed the original contract gave them a seven-year exclusive commitment to the anthology series, The Mickey Mouse Club and Zorro. So negotiations between the studio and the other networks ended. Roy was enraged with ABC and told his staff that this was a breach of faith. 
On July 3, 1959, Walt Disney Productions filed a lawsuit against ABC seeking to invalidate the contracts between the studio and ABC under provisions of federal antitrust laws. Despite this ongoing lawsuit, Disney and ABC managed to agree to a separate contract for Walt Disney Presents to keep the series on the air. Starting with Season 7 in 1960-61, the series moved to what would become its traditional Sunday night time slot. As the lawsuit continued in court, Walt seemed to lose interest in the series. The season continued its emphasis on westerns and re-ran Davy Crockett and Texas John Slaughter. Four one-hour episodes of Zorro were produced for the anthology series. Walt planned to bring Zorro back as a weekly series once the legal issues over the show were settled with ABC. A four-part miniseries, loosely based on the life of Kentucky pioneer Daniel Boone, also ran during the season starring Dewey Martin, and this is not to be confused with the Daniel Boone television series that starred Fess Parker as Daniel Boone a few years later. Leslie Nielsen starred as American Revolutionary War hero Francis Marion in the eight-episode miniseries The Swamp Fox. This series tells the story of Colonel Francis Marion's efforts to turn the tide against the British during the American Revolutionary War, and he is considered the father of guerrilla warfare. I think this has been released in the um, Disney Treasures um, series. And um, it's really good. And so. Leslie Nielsen obviously is being the uh, a regular actor in this, not yes. what we've come to know him from. Yeah, yeah. This is before his comedian days. He was a <laughs> yeah. regular serious actor and a leading man. And it's hard like to that. remember to realize that because you know I just know him forever as the you know the the airplane guy. The, yes, the that's over right. the top humorous. And then what was that? Um, what was that police Naked drama? Gun. Naked Gun. I love that. It's great. Yeah. Walt's interest in Walt Disney Presents was rekindled around the time the relationship with ABC had reached a point of no return, and Walt figured he could end the show's trends in Westerns. The lawsuit resulted in favor of Walt Disney Productions, so now Walt seriously thought of moving the series to another network. Since there were only two other networks to choose from, Walt knew it was crucial to make sure the series remained successful. Nothing could happen to cause either NBC or CBS to reject the series because his bargaining power would then be significantly reduced. Walt wanted to focus on NBC because they were the leaders in color broadcasting. CBS had improved their color broadcast system but did not have as many affiliate stations equipped for color broadcasting as NBC. Walt believed color was essential to presenting his shows in the best possible way. Since he was recording them in color, he wanted to broadcast them in color. Walt called a meeting with NBC executives and personally presented his plan to move his anthology series to NBC and broadcast it in color. After the meeting, he told Don Tatum and Card Walker, Fellas, I want this deal. If necessary, I'll stand on my head in Macy's window. Oh, that's great. 
Much to the disappointment of Macy's executives, <laughs> Walt did not have to stand on his head in their display window because NBC executives immediately saw the advantages of teaming up with Disney. Their parent company, RCA, was so confident that having Walt show on NBC would sell more color televisions that they oh, agreed yeah. to sponsor half of the episodes. Oh, they were smart. Mm-hmm. Oh, they absolutely were. Walt announced that Walt's anthology, or NBC announced that Walt's anthology series would move to their network on Sundays at 7.30 p.m. for the 1961-62 season, and that it would be broadcast in color. To emphasize it would be in color, the title of the series was changed to Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Before the show aired, sales of color televisions, of RCA colored televisions, increased. So, John, this is the show that we really remember. I do remember this. Mm-hmm. I do remember the wonderful. What's amazing is, you know how there's a video game that's so good that people will buy the console for it. In this case, Disney is producing a color TV show and people know about it and they will go out and upgrade their TV for yeah. it. Yeah. And I do would you- be one of those yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the opening too? How they made the maximum use of color. They had flowers blooming and butterflies and fireworks and kaleidoscopes. Yes. And oh my gosh. It it made no sense. It was a mishmash. They were just showing off. Just showing as much color as possible. And with the Sherman Brothers song that, that went with it. So um, the theme was it. Song? The world is a wonderful. The, yeah, the world, the world is a, is a wonderland yeah. of color. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So um, the original plan was to recreate the format of the original Disneyland show by dividing the series into four different themes. Walt broke down the themes into the wonderful world of fiction, the wonderful world of fantasy the wonderful world of adventure, and the wonderful world of classics. But these themes were only used internally and were never broadcast to audiences. I'm surprised at that. Yeah, somehow it reminds me of like renaming the lands at Epcot. Yeah, yeah. You know, know, nobody's going to know what those new (laughs) names are, you know. (laughs) Still future world and world showcase. At first, the plan was to open the series with a three-hour special, which would include a two-hour made-for-television animated film. This was dropped for a one-hour special introductory show. Walt knew he needed to quickly show this new series, that this was indeed new. So a new character was created for the series, Professor Ludwig von Drake, a relative of Donald Duck. I love Professor von Drake. I remember him from the sing-along videos. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. The professor appeared in this first episode and several others throughout the series. In this opening episode titled An Adventure in Color and Math Magic Land, Walt Oh, that sounds boring. <laughs> Math Magic Land. Oh, <laughs> it's have you ever seen that? We'll no. Talk, we'll talk about what it is. Okay, I want to see it now. Walt promoted several of the exciting episodes he was working on, whilst Professor Ludwig von Drake explained how color television worked in his own unique way. Because, you know, he always got things a little twisted. And, and of course, this was created to subtly promote the sale of color televisions. 
The second half of the episode showed a 1959 featurette, Donald in Math Magic Land. This is a wonderful featurette. It is so creative. It shows how we're surrounded by math in nature, in architecture, and it's Donald Duck. So it's there's a silliness to it. Okay. I, Can we find this? Yes. This came out on physical media. It was in VHS and um, it, it's on, I think it's on other DVDs and things like that. I would show when I taught junior college and I was assigned one of the classes I taught was math 101, which is students called bonehead math. So, and it, it was very basic. And I always showed this in our first class to explain to them the importance of math. And they loved it. You know, these 18, 19 year olds loved this. And I think it gave them an excitement for this class that they thought was going to be boring. And so okay, I can um, see that this is the word, the word math magic just sounds, uh, but I'm sure if I see it with Donald Duck, I'll be into it. I think you will enjoy this. It is so cool. And it'll teach you how to play pool. Oh, that's one of the things in there because pool is all mathematics. It's all geometry. Yeah. And all that. And so it is, um, it's really good. This is worth seeking out for okay. folks who haven't watched it. And you know what? If you have young children who maybe aren't as excited about math, show this to them and talk about it with them. Because I think you might start, you know, getting that ember burning about doing math homework, about being interested in math, <laughs> things like that. Because that's what I used it for. So. Now, this was the eighth season of Walt's anthology series, and it did not include any Westerns, with the exception of a two-part serialization of the 1958 live-action film The Light in the Forest, starring Fess Parker and James MacArthur. In our next installment of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Television, we'll explore Walt's relationship with NBC and what happened to the series after his passing in 1966. And let me just ask you, from what you, you know with your research, he was it a, a contract that expired with ABC that allowed him to leave and go no, to NBC? They won, they won the um, lawsuit that they owned this oh. series, and so that they could go wherever they wanted with it. Now, the issue is then people wonder, okay, what happened with Zorro and the Mickey Mouse Club? Why didn't they travel to, to NBC? So much time, it took so much time for that lawsuit to get resolved that Walt felt Zorro's time and the Mickey Mouse Club's time had passed. Okay, and so, so was, he, he would have to have a separate lawsuit for each uh, show. No, so he no, figured he, it wasn't worth it. He won them all. But he oh. felt by this time, he won, they won the rights that they owned everything they created for ABC. Oh. But Walt just felt that the popularity of Zorro and the Mickey Mouse Club was now over too much was time, too much time had elapsed. So it, he, he, if he brought him back, they would not have the successes they had enjoyed. So Thank you. very interesting. So that's why. So, but now it's time for this week in Disney history. Okay. Well, now it is my turn. 
And I am, I am, we did a whole, we did a, we investigated this, this event. We did it actually when I was on our, our uh, old um, Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, I did this show and I think um, we brought it over and it's now a connecting with Walt episode. But do you like the Olympics, John? Do you like, are you an Olympics watcher? Some of them I watch it. It has to catch me. Mm-hmm. I don't sit there and watch all of them. Just one, one or two, you know, and mm-hmm. I find some character that I like and I mm-hmm. kind of follow that person. I love the Olympics. Not as much as my wife did, but I like them. There are, there are certain, um, there are certain sports I like in the Olympics and I like, and I like the winter as well as the summer. So I get excited about them. Ca- Carol would follow the whole thing. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> And she would have, and then when it started to move to where it wasn't just on television, it was also on the computer and all this stuff. So she would have everything open so that she could stay up to date on all of it. So, um, what a great obsession to have. Yes. Oh, she loves sports. So, um, me, not so much. (laughs) Me either. So, but on February 18th, 1960, under. Under this huge storm, the greatest winter athletes in the world gathered at Squaw Valley, California, which has since been renamed, um, to begin the eighth Olympic Winter Games. Now, the opening and closing ceremonies uh, are were all planned by Walt Disney because he was selected as the head of pageantry for the Games. So, of course, this is Walt. So this involved 5,000 participants, 1,285 instruments, and 2,645 voices from 52 California Nevada high school bands. The opening ceremony was delayed an hour because of early morning snowfall, included daytime fireworks, which had never been done for the Olympics. Opening and closing ceremonies had really never been done like this before. I mean, for this this Olympics, what Walt and John Hinch and Ron Miller was involved with this, what they did sort of set the standard for all future Olympics. Things we're doing today in the Olympic Games started at this one, and um, and this is where we got the sort of the the um, saying about Disney weather, where because it the weather was so bad that the um. The instruments were freezing to the lips of some of the uh, these poor high school students. The vice president couldn't get into the Olympic Games. He was having wow. struggling to get into it. Um, they thought they were going to have to cancel. And then suddenly, right before everything was going to commence, the the heavens parted, the sun shone, and it all went off without a hitch. And this is when everybody said, okay, Walt has a connection here. And then that's when everybody started talking about Disney weather and yep, all that. happens. So, yeah. So Disney artist John Hench, he designed this huge Tower of Nations that was at the entrance of Squaw Valley. And John Hench designed the Olympic torch that was oh. – um, that that still versions of it are used today for the Olympic runners – and all that. And he designed the um he designed not only the torch that the runners ran with, but the Olympic torch that was lit at the stadium as well. Um the this ceremonial Tower of Nations was 79 feet high and 20 feet wide. 
And um, like I said, wide and like I said, his torch design is has been the basis for all future Olympic torches, all Olympic torches since then. The I have val- no idea. Yeah, the valley had thirty flagpoles for flags of all the participating nations, and each flagpole has a plaque that is signed by Walt Disney. And there are still now. The, now the flagpoles all then found other homes. Some went to the sponsors of the Olympics. And then, but there are some you can still see today easily. If you go to Marceline, Missouri, the Walt Disney Elementary School has one of the poles. And if you ever go to the Walt Disney Studio in Burbank, California, one of the poles is outside the studio commissary. Oh, wow. There so that you can see it. This is the first time that the um, Olympic Games were nationally televised. And the ceremonies are the most elaborate ever staged. It it sets new standard for future games. This is the first time where there was entertainment back um, for the athletes at the Olympic Village. So Walt called in all his Hollywood friends like Art Linkletter and 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 all the actors. They came in and did um, did shows and entertained them because there was like nothing at Squaw Valley. Squaw Valley is not what it is today. There was nothing there. So he entertained them. And then they gave away little prizes. So they were like, like one of the prizes, now keep in mind, this is 1960. One of the prizes was a long distance phone call back to your family for one of the other. Oh, wow. This was a big deal in those days because long distance was expensive. And one of the athletes wanted who lived overseas, he was so excited to win it. He ran and they took it yeah. on the phone and then he realized his family didn't own a phone. <laughs> oh. You know, it's funny because I, I, I do remember when long distance was an expensive thing. Do you remember long distance cards? People would buy cards. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. You're bringing back so many things that I just. And, and remember, you only, you only made long distance calls at a certain time because it was cheaper. Yes. After 7 p.m. Uh, yes. 7 p.m. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. I can't yeah. believe I'm that old. I, I kind of forgot this stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. And pin trading got its start here. Really? At, Walt had seen pins at other places he went to. And so pin trading became a thing at this Olympics. If you go to the Walt Disney Family Museum, first of all, you will see one of the Olympic torches there. But you will see some of the Olympic pins that were traded at um, at the Olympics there. Hmm. That's so, another good show. When pins started, did they start in Disneyland? So um, I don't know. If they, I, I'm not sure exactly where they started. They started at Disneyland or Walt Disney World. It seems like if a lot only of stuff we, it started. If, if only we had a historian that could find this stuff. I out know. I'll day. have to look it up and see. Maybe we could do a whole <laughs> thing on pin trading. On yeah, where it where it originated, how yeah, it started, yeah. when did it become a thing? Yeah. So, so John, what do you have for us today? Mine is not as epic as yours, but I still like it. And it's, it's, I guess you could say, based on what we've been saying, it's fairly current. It's 1996, February 13th, the Test Track Preview Center opens oh. up at Epcot. And it wasn't until December of 98 that it actually would become come to fruition that you could, uh, you know, the early uh, soft opening. For mm-hmm. it. But I have not seen this. Do you remember a Test Track Preview Center? I do. 
Do you remember what it was? Was it was it in the spot that Test Track is, or it was, was like it in the it Odyssey? Was like in front of it, we when we did okay. the shows on Test Track, I think we might have talked a little about it, and it it had um, it had the concept art and things like that in there about it. I think at one point it may have even had one of the the uh, models of the of the vehicles, things like that. So oh, very um, cool in there. So right. it was something to get something to get the people excited. Yeah. That was I yeah. like that. Now, of course, we have opening at the Magic Kingdom, a new vehicle ride coaster kind of thing with, um, yep. with Tron. Uh, Tron Light, what is it called? Light Cycle Slash Run. run. I don't know what that means. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so, and you wrote it. I did, and I really, really enjoyed it. The uh, mm-hmm. The vehicle's very different. It, it's not just a weight thing if you can fit on the regular vehicle. There's a knee component because you're kind yes. of pushed onto your knees. And maybe somebody older, even if they're thin, who can't be so prone uh, leaning forward, there is a seat in the back of two of the four vehicles that is a bench seat, which is very, you know, just sitting regular. Mm-hmm. And that's a big comfy seat. Supposedly, the other two vehicles are going to be outfitted with this seat. Which Good. I'm surprised is an afterthought because I don't think they realize how many people wanted or needed the, you know, it's not just a need. It's sometimes people just want it. They don't want to straddle mm-hmm. the coaster. So, yeah, they, I think that when they saw the line, they said, you know what? Probably all four seats, all four coasters need this. I agree. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, good. Yeah, I wrote it in Shanghai. And my problem ah. is before I really got myself settled in it, it got locked in. So I was Ugh. uncomfortable the whole time. And I think it gave me, a, as a result, I got a little more motion sick. And I thought, okay. okay, I wrote it once. I'll never ride it again. So I'll see. I might ride it at the Magic Kingdom. And if it's ever a question where you really don't, make sure, just request the back seat. You wait 10 yeah. more minutes, maybe. And yeah. and you have a nice, you still get to do it. But, you know, it feels a little different. Yeah, uh, It was quick to me. Like, I wanted it to last a little longer. But mm-hmm. I realized with all this imagination in this building and how fast it's going, there's just not enough room to, you know, Guardians, for some reason, packs in a much longer ride. I'm sure it's a bigger building somewhere. Oh, it's a huge building. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I liked it a lot. I can't. It's it really. You know what's amazing to me, Michael? It fits in so well. When you are under the canopy and you see the contemporary and the uh, Space Mountain, Mm -hmm. it's just a symbiotic. It uh, it should have been there forever. It's perfect. Oh, that's great! Nicely, great. And I haven't seen it at night. That's what I'm. Should be beautiful at night. It is at Shanghai. Yeah. So. And I love that the train goes under it and the people mover is kind of near it. It's kind of like a we were talking about on the show today, and Rhino loved that too, where it's like a bunch of different technologies from different eras. Centuries. A lot of different, yeah, different transportation eras. from different eras. Yep. Yeah. That's it. That is neat in there. Good. Well, I saw I finally watched Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Oh god. Oh, that one. Yes. I haven't seen that one. I heard that was good. Yeah, it is. I think you okay. would enjoy it. So it's a lot better than the, I, I haven't bothered to watch the remake of Pinocchio that Disney did, but it's very different. It is like nothing like the original animated Disney version of Pinocchio. How dark would you say Guillermo gets? Like really dark or not too bad? Medium dark. The story itself is dark, the original story. Yeah. And so yeah. he keeps a lot of that in there. Okay. So Yeah, Disney, Disney kind of 
kind of, you know, rose colored glasses for a lot of the dark parts of like Little Mermaid and Pinocchio. I don't know the dark parts, so I'm going to go watch. Yeah, it's good. And, you know, um, you know, he continues the story on farther than the Disney version does. So, you know, uh, you know, Pinocchio's a real boy, but he's young. And the other people in his life are older or have shorter lifespans. So it oh. goes into that as Oh, that well. sounds a little depressing. So um, anyway, but so it's, it's, um, it, it's a good film. It's really well animated. And although I didn't realize that Jim Henson Studios were involved with it as well. Oh, I, had, I've, I, I, I heard saw, no connection of Henson. I didn't either, but I saw it in the credits. Me? Oh, so wait, is it stop motion animation? It is. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess the Henson made puppets. Yeah, they might have. So anyway, but it's good. Definitely worth the watch. So, um, oh, I finally got my Destination D Amazon Echo from two years ago. I have not connected it yet. I thought, okay, this is going to be a, I'm sure this is going to challenge my technological um, abilities. I I can't believe I missed you there, but I was there too. I was told I was getting a free one. I don't know. Did they ever call you to get your address or anything, or you just magically got it in the mail? No. Well, apparently emails went out from D23. Oh. And okay. so, and it had the code in there with the instructions for emailing it. Now, my issue, my challenge was, is that I wasn't able to buy Destination D tickets, but I had a friend who we, if I had gotten in first, I was going to buy a ticket for him. And if he got in first, he was going to buy a ticket for me. He got in first. Problem is he lives in Canada. So, and, and what was lousy is, is that, you know, at the, you might remember the Destination D event, how they made a big deal of all the people we have from all these different countries, all these fans coming here, except all of those fans, they're not going to get the Amazon Echo, only people in the United States. So I thought that was lousy. And I don't know the reason for it, if it's shipping or <sighs> yeah, connectivity it's issues. Shipping. I have no idea because they never explained why, which was lousy. So th- so then I thought, well, I actually was never really interested in getting Amazon Echo because I don't like something listening in. And then, But then I thought, wait a minute. It's free. I paid. I should get one. I should get it. You could always unplug it when you don't want to talk to it. But the, it's the Disney version where you can say, hey, Disney to it? I think so. It's supposed to be that one. That's so, going to be I fun. I think that's going to be cute. So we'll see. I, like I said, I have to set it up and all that. And so then, anyway, so then um, so then what happened is, is that so he didn't get the email. Now, he had been writing. We had been writing for like two years to the, the D23 guest relations saying, hey, you know, is there any way it could be sent to me? Could I get it? Send it to him. And they say, well, we'll, we'll talk to our, our supervisors, managers, get back to you. Of course, they never did. And so then, um, so did uh, D23 guest relations wasn't terrific. Yeah. And then um, what would happen? And, you know, and I'm a Charter Gold member, so I felt, you know, it's not like I was a Johnny come lately to all this. And so then uh, so then what happened is somebody posted, after the emails went out, then somebody posted, if you have a guest and they don't have a code, if you bought a ticket for a guest, so this is what you should write. 
So he wrote, he had to write a revised version of it to D23 saying, you know, my, I'm in Canada and all that, but my person I bought the, this for is in the United States. So he needs the code and all that. And I think we were hoping they would give him a code as well. Well, they just gave me the code. So, um, so I ordered it and it came in a couple of days. And, and it's only that. one. You didn't get two. No, only one. So so that's disappointing. So yeah. and I still think they should rectify it or at least explain the reasoning yeah. behind it. Maybe they did and I missed it. I don't know. So I'll see. I sure I'm going to have stories about <laughs> yes. um, setting this up. <laughs> A coworker of mine said, You should just get one of the kids in your neighborhood to come over and help you. And I said, Yeah, I'll get the seven year old next door. I said, he'll probably be able to set it up for me. <laughs> one day you're gonna be one day you're gonna be in Disneyland going down Main Street. Somebody's gonna come up to you and say, Rough morning you had, huh? I heard you dropped your coffee today. You're gonna be like, oh, it really was listening to me. That's right. That's right. I heard you swearing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well we wanted to remind folks oh yeah and if anybody has any tips on how to set this thing up feel free to um send me a message or put it it kind kind of talks you through it i think it's going to be easy do you have one i have a regular amazon uh i have i don't want to say her name because she'll turn on i have her everywhere okay arexa i'm saying her in a different oh okay so oh i don't know that see Oh. See, she says she don't know that. She Hello, sweetheart. Alexa, thank you. You're so welcome. See, You're she has a lovely voice. She does. Hope She's you pre- had a good Tuesday. Oh, thank you. She's she talks sometimes when you don't want her to. Yes, well, like Siri. Yeah, yeah, same thing. Yeah, same yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. It's really good when you when it tells you your Amazon stuff came, and then you can say thank my driver, Alexa, thank my driver. And whatever you're glad you enjoyed your most recent delivery. We'll share your thanks with your driver. They send five dollars to your Amazon driver. Oh, just for saying that. Isn't that great? That is great. I'll remember that. So I make sure every time I get a delivery, I say that's that the person gets five. Oh, I will. Um, I will. I have to learn all this stuff. Thank you. Whenever you get a delivery, yeah, just tell tell her thank thank my driver when she does. I have to figure out how do people set it up so like their lights go on and off and dim and all that stuff. I'll go over that with you. It's pretty easy. I'll do it with you. Sounds good. Because I I do not have a smart home. There's more stuff you need to buy for the lights. Oh, of course, of course there is. But and I have to leave it to Beaver Home, as I always said. It's it's (laughs) very 1950s style. Anyway, we wanted to remind you all, hey, if you want to come out and visit Waltz Park, if you live near Waltz Park, we have a Diz event. The Diz is coming to California, gang. We will be here. Well, I'm here already. But the rest of the team will be here from August 4th through the 6th, 2023. So um, so just to to let you know what it is, on August 4th at 8.30 p.m., um, everybody who buys a ticket, tickets are not on sale yet, unless you're part of the backstage magic that you book through Dreams Unlimited Travel. That is um, right before that. It's like um, July 30th through August 4th. If you book that, you can contact Kevin Close, um, Kevin at DreamsUnlimitedTravel.com to book that. Yeah, I don't know if there are any openings, but you can always ask him. 
because sometimes people change their plans and openings come up. And that's a wonderful, wonderful trip. Go to Imagineering and stuff. But you get complimentary tickets to the event. So that's another plus. But you will um, we'll go to Pixar Gardens. And then um, we have a private reception there um, from 9 to 11.30 p.m. There's going to be food, beverages, and exciting guests. I'm waiting to hear who that is. And then 11th, maybe maybe it'll be Bob Iger. And then from 11.30 to 1 a.m. Oh, don't quote me on that, please. Um, (laughs) Then from, because somebody will be disappointed. They say, Michael said Bob Iger would be here. (laughs) No, I'm just goofing around. From 11.30 p.m. to 1 a.m. is a private Pixar party. So you get to go on unlimited rides, including the Incredicoaster. Did you ever see that video when Rhino rode it three times in a row? I think I saw part of it, yes. I I wrote it two times in a row, and that was enough for me. He wrote it (laughs) three times. Oh, the poor fellow. This was when it was um, California Screaming. So I'll write it once. A Toy Story Midway Mania. I love that attraction. Pixar Pixar Pal Around. We talked about that last week. I don't know if you'll get me in those cages that go back and forth, but maybe. If if we get Mary Jo in there and you, uh, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay. All right. Jesse's critter. <laughs> Mary Jo's probably screaming at her computer <laughs> I'll get her to right do it. now. Inside Out Emotional Whirlwind. Um, Jesse's Critter Corral for the Little Tykes in there. And Silly Symphony Swings, which I've never been on and uh, I'm worried about. I always think I'm going to somehow fly off and land in the lagoon. Uh, <laughs> Also, you can play all the games of the boardwalk. They are free, but free play means no prizes. So you just have the 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 satisfaction of knowing you did well. <laughs> <laughs> and then on August 5th, there'll be a live podcast at Disney's Grand Californian Resort and Spa. And then um a lot some of the uh you know members of the Diz will be hanging around for the next couple of days. So there'll be meet and greets and things like that with them. Uh, I'll be there until the seventh. So you'll probably see me. I'll be there from the fourth to the seventh. So I'll be be bopping around. I'm staying at the grand Californian. So anyway, so I hope we'll see some of our connecting with Walt listeners there. So that's a lot of fun. Terrific. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, so John Valentine's day will be happening um, during the week. The show is out. Do you have any big plans for Valentine's day? Yeah, I have to rebuy the chocolate that we ate because I couldn't wait. (laughs) One day we're sitting down and I was like, I have a bunch of like Valentine Kit Kats. And my husband looks at me, he's like, we can always, you know, get another gift. I'm like, all right. So that was it for that. So yeah, no, you know, I don't do too much for Valentine's. Mm -hmm. I really don't. I should. Yeah, we well, Carol and I, we wouldn't necessarily go out on Valentine's Day because everything, everybody raises their prices. Yeah. that time so i would always make a special dinner or something with a special dessert and then you we would go what? out on another day that's a good idea and you just made me think that this valentine's i'm gonna make a lasagna i think that's what I'm gonna oh do. that would be good that that was it's always- one of those things that i don't do often it's it's expensive it takes a long time so yeah that would be a nice thing but when we were dating <clears throat> the first time carol invited me over to her home she made homemade lasagna it was to die for and then we were dating and then we got married and i said how come you never make lasagna anymore and she said well now i don't need to (laughs) (laughs) did carol have any uh, italian background at all um no no none at all but she still made a good lasagna he made Um, a good lasagna 
So um, anyway, but no, she was Scotch Irish with a little Maltese thrown in. So well, so, you know, Malta's off the coast of Italy. So that's there's, true. There's some in they there. Can, they, they can make a lasagna. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so but she did make it once or twice more, but it is a lot of work. So you know what it is too? The sauce to make it from scratch. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to use a canned sauce, which you really can't, it's not good. No. Because right. then you're just you're wasting the lasagna. Yeah. But first you got to do the sauce. Then you got to if you add meat to it is another thing. Then the cheese. And let me tell you, with the price of stuff now at the grocery store, I could easily have a seventy five dollar lasagna. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, but well, happy Valentine's Day. You too. Thank you. I referred to several books, articles, and websites during my research for this episode. The books I used, The Wonderful World of Disney Television, A Complete History by Bill Cotter. Sunday Nights with Walt, Everything I Know I Learned from the Wonderful World of Disney by Richard Rothrock. Some articles um, that are on online articles. Eyes of a Generation, Television's Living History, The Whole Story of Disney on Television. The Walt Disney Family Museum um, site, The Genesis of Disney Television. Postcard Inspirations, uh, Walt Disney and Television. Nostalgia Central had an article on the wonderful world of Disney. The Disney Wiki's article on the wonderful world of Disney. And TV Tropes, an article on Walt Disney Presents. And Investopedia, Walt Disney, How Entertainment Became an Empire. And Craig will have links to all of those in our show notes. John, We should all be grateful Michael, for you curating this information, a lot of people, I have to say, would not uh, say where where they're getting all their information from, and they would get it from one source. You really do your research. Thank oh, you thank for doing you. this. Process. Oh, you're you're welcome. Yeah, it is fun because uh, there's no real one source. Sometimes that has all the information, so so you have to dig around a bit too. So, and then remember, some of the episodes we talked about they are available on YouTube. So some of those mini series that we talked about. So those can be fun to watch. So, so John, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Bigfatpanda.com goes to my YouTube where I just did a couple of Tron videos, but mostly you can find me at the Diz, the Diz Unplugged on YouTube, the DVC fan on YouTube and the DCL fan on YouTube as well as right here. Good. Thank you. You can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me, Craig, and John on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts. You can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings and possible. Yeah, look up those, those, those episodes we did on the Man in Space series and on the uh the, the winter olympics that, i'm going to and math math magic is my takeaway i'm going to watch that very i might watch it tonight math magic. Yeah, well let me if you do let me know what you think of it i will by the next show you'll we'll, we'll talk about it. okay great well thank you for making us a part of your day and remember i only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man walt disney and his brother roy oh.